0: taking
2: all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored.
0: Welcome, everyone, to Literary Treks. This is Literary Treks number 219, and we're going to be talking about The 34th Rule, a novel that came out in 1999. And I'm Bruce Gibson. I'm one of your hosts here on Literary Treks, which is your official Star Trek books and comics show of the Trek FM network. And with me, as always is Dan Gunther.
2: Hey Bruce, good to be here again. Now, you did mention that we're talking about the novel The 34th Rule. Uh don't try and Google Rule 34. That's something different, I found out. Rule, really? Rule 34 of the internet is is nothing to do with 34th Rule of Acquisition. So, is it something bad? Oh. Well, anybody who's fluent in internet stuff out there will know what I'm talking about. I'll I'll tell
0: you after we're done recording, Bruce. Okay. I might want to just stay away from that. (laughs) (laughs) I'll stick with the 34th rule. I can't even talk. The 34th rule. There you go. Nice and easy. (laughs) But, you know, before we do that, oh, you know what? And we invited someone to join us to talk about it. And this is not a Trek FM host. This is somebody that maybe had something to do with writing the novel. We'll leave that as a bit of a surprise for later. Excellent. I'm intrigued. You should be. You Just you wait. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get into that, we do have a new release of Star Trek Boldly Go. And this is issue number 16. And it's also part of this IDIC series. That's six issues. And this will be IDIC part four. That's IDIC part four. I'm really trying to talk clearly (laughs) (laughs) because when I say the 34th roll, I mess things up. So, okay. So we've got this issue again. I said it's six parts. This is part four. And this is that whole weird thing where we have all these different Enterprise crew people that are from different dimensions and some are plants and some are, if they're male in one one universe, they're female in another, or they're like steel people or (laughs) metal people or whatever they are. And they're all intermixed and all in different places. But somebody, somebody's behind this happening. And one of the things we thought, you know, maybe it's Q. I mean, this is something a Q would do, but I, you know, not really sure. It may not be. We don't know yet. Mm -hmm. And that's not even revealed in this issue.
2: Yeah. I I really was expecting that to be revealed in this issue, but I mean, I guess there are two more issues after this. It's a six part series. So I guess they're not going to show all their cards yet, but You know, I I don't think it's Q because in the, I think it was the last issue, they had that line where Kirk says, Q, is that you? Is is that who's behind this? And the line is something along the lines of, we make the Q look like nothing or something like that. Like, this seems to me to be something other than Q,
0: but uh, I don't know. I mean, that, that just really intrigues me. I mean, I, the thing about Star Trek, especially, you know, when we're reading comics and books, it doesn't necessarily have to tie into species or characters that we've met before. This could be all something new. These could be the T's instead of the Q's. I mean, it could be
2: a completely different letter entirely. These could be the Q-tips. <laughs> Maybe it's not even a letter. Maybe they're the interrobangs. <laughs> they're, they're, a, they're a punctuation
0: mark of some sort. <laughs> But right now they're a question mark because we have no idea who we, these, are, whatever. But basically all these different universes of Enterprise crew members are all all intermingled on different locations. And apparently it's more than just the three storylines that we see through this issue uh, whoever this being or beings are, they're saying that there's so much that our human brains can't comprehend it because we have eight brains. So they're just going to focus on these three stories. And in one of them we have, uh, and I'm not going to name all of them because it gets a bit confusing, but you know, we have uh, a mix of crew members with our Kelvin timeline Kirk and a metal Sulu, I think, and <laughs> so on and so forth, but whatever they're, they're on, uh, see, I'm already forgetting. Where are they? They're not on Vulcan. They're. Are they. Are they, they?
2: These ones are on Earth, I believe,
0: right? Under uh, the female oh, Khan. Yes, they're under the female Khan. Thank you. That's what it is. So they're trying to escape the female Khan on this one. And then in the second storyline, we have them on Vulcan and they're trying to escape. Uh, Nero or get to Nero ship to try to escape and do whatever they're trying to do. And then we've got the third one where they're on Risa where Spock is female captain and Scotty is gas ball of gas. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and Kirk is a plant and because on (laughs) Risa the pheromones are getting to him and he's making out with leafy vegetables
2: Mm-hmm.
0: that are female, by the way. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I so, mean, there are so many jokes, so many jokes that can be made. Um, not all of them appropriate, but yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, we don't know what the root cause is, but ah. anyway. uh, so it's interesting how they set it up because there are three storylines and three different environments and three different things going on. So each page is, is three panels. The top panel is the first storyline. The middle panel is the second and the bottom panel is the third. So as you go through each page, you get to get used to that rhythm that you're going one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, as you go through the story, which I think helps. Did, Did that help you, Dan? Because I know you kind of read through it quickly before we recorded.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So I I had to go through this one twice because apparently my feeble human synapses couldn't even handle just the three stories. And I think like I didn't pick up on that right away. So the first three or four pages, I thought there were more stories going on and I was just going through it so fast. It wasn't making sense to me. Uh, So I had to go back. And, you know, once I got that, I was like, okay, now I'm getting it. So yeah, I was uh yeah, don't read this one in a rush. Is the moral of the story here, I guess.
0: Yeah, cuz you almost have to take a moment before you go to each panel to go, okay, now where are we? You know, I'm going back to this. Okay, good. You know, cuz mm-hmm. even in the first one, I mentioned, you know, we have the Kelvin timeline Kirk and he's with uh, Spock that doesn't have pointed ears that's called Grayson and he's more human he, he accepts more of his human side than his Vulcan side which was all this stuff had been established in the previous three issues so mm-hmm. I would not go into just this issue alone necessarily I think it would help to read the past three issues uh, because that's really the setup of the six part series but if you were just going to read this as a standalone eh, it, it might work for you I don't know
2: yeah it's um it's definitely interesting it's very artistic very interestingly put together uh I don't hmm how to put this i I guess because it was so confusing to start with, I couldn't really get into it, but you know rereading it a second time it's it's interesting and I really like where the stories are going, but because there are three different stories that are happening in a fairly short comic issue we don't get a ton of progression on them i guess uh there are a few big things of course that happen uh especially so with the first story for example they're trying to escape con's dungeon and they get out and they're making their way to a shuttle and then uh surprise it turns out that grayson is not exactly the nice guy that we thought he was and uh that was a really interesting twist that i have to admit i didn't see coming
0: yeah. in the second story, uh, the crew is stopped by uh, Velas who was the officer, the first officer in the Endeavor who went to Romulus mm-hmm. in previous issues. And of course, this is a different universe anyway. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's I wonder if it would help sometimes if you understand the format, if it would help if you, know, you, you read, just go through the pages, just read the format top panel first as if it's one story and then go back and just read the middle panels, then go and read the third and read it. Each story is one continuous one as opposed to being separated. That might be interesting. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, um, you know, I guess if they wanted to do it in a boring way, they could have published it that way. (laughs) But at the same time doing it this way, you know, all three of those stories kind of come to a climax and a very similar situation all at the same time at the very end. And, uh, you know, but at the time we're recording this, it was just interesting. The little parallels with uh, the discovery episode that just recently aired where, you know, the rallying cry that Saru gives to his crew. It's in the episode. Uh, what's past is prologue. He yes. says, I don't believe not, not, I don't believe in the no scenario, but, but something like that. And at the end of this story, we get, you know, that theme of a no win scenario of some kind with all three captains Kirk <laughs> coming to a, a, an interesting point in their stories here.
0: Yeah. I haven't been a big fan of these when we started them. Cause it just seems really odd. These like different enterprise crew people, you know, Oh, in one universe, they're the opposite sex. In another universe, they're gas in another they're metal. It's like, you know what? And there's another universe that they're all Cheetos. I don't know. It's just kind of strange to me, but I'm starting to get into it more and I've come to kind of accept it. And it, it's, it's, it, I'm, I'm a little more interested. I'm definitely interested to see who's doing all this and where this is going. So I'm intrigued now. I'm sold. I'm ready for five and six.
2: Yeah. Uh, rereading this one. Me too. Like I'm kind of getting into the story And like I said, especially where the story ends up, I'm really curious to see what happens next. So yeah, this is getting more interesting to me for sure.
0: Okay. Well, we'll see what happens as these comics continue to come out. So I say it's time to go into the feature and see what you think of the book we're going to review. All right. And I'm really excited to meet this special guest we've brought on. Oh, just you wait. So on today's show, we decided let's rewind the clock back in time and pull an oldie, but a goodie. It's not that old. I mean, it's from 1999, but in some respects, some people look at that as being old. That's last century, Bruce. That's last millennium, (laughs) Bruce. (laughs) That is true. But in the scope of all the Star Trek novels, you know, it's been, it falls somewhere in the middle of the timeline. Mm. But- We decided to go to Deep Space Nine and read The 34th Rule. And Dan, this is the first time I've read this book. What about you?
2: I am in the same boat. This is the first time that I've read it as well. It's been one that's been sitting on my shelf for years. I picked it up at a used bookstore a few years ago. Uh, I did not get it when it first came out, unfortunately, but it's been sitting there tempting me and i've heard a lot of good things about it and have always wanted to read it so this is the first time i've gotten a chance to do that
0: i think i didn't read it when it first came out for two reasons one that year was a busy year i was getting married we were buying a house there was just a lot going on and two it's a pretty good excuse i, I guess it is a pretty good <laughs> excuse but i also think that the cover we've got Quark and Rom on it and I just figured, oh, it's probably a silly frangy adventure anyway, you know. But then I heard good things later about it to the point I was like, Oh, I think I really need to go back and read that. So, you know, I think one of the things to do is we're reading this book and discussing it. We've invited one of the authors of the book, David R. George the third, to join us and he's here right now. David, how you doing?
1: I'm good, Bruce, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing good. I'm doing really good. Cause you know what? I read this book and I liked it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's good to hear.
0: So this book was also written by Armin Shimmerman. And for those who don't know, Armin Shimmerman is the actor who played Quark on DS nine. And this is based on the story by these two authors, by David and by Armin and also Eric Stilwell, who was one of the co-writers of the TNG episode yesterday's enterprise And he also collaborated with David on the Voyager episode, Prime Factors. So, David, knowing all this, give us an idea of how this book even came together between the three of you.
1: Well, I actually started out as an episode pitch. Um, As you said, Eric and I um, had been writing together. And um, Eric was actually a script supervisor on the show, on the Star Trek series. and he knew that uh, Armin actually, uh, unlike most actors who want to direct, Armin had the desire to write. And in fact, Armin had already co-written a novel, um, a a, a historical science fiction, quasi-science fiction, quasi-fantasy novel called The Merchant Prince, sort of a, a, a Shakespearean you, uh, I, I don't, it's, a, it's a good book, um, and, I, and I read it, and he actually had a follow-up to it, but he'd already written that, and he wanted to write um, for the show. So um, I, Eric introduced me to Armin, and the three of us started getting together to start coming up with story ideas to pitch for the show, to pitch for Deep Space Nine. And we we came up with a few, and we went in and pitched, and we didn't sell any of them, which was disappointing. But on our way out of the building. Um, after after our pitch, Armin said, "You know, we should we should turn one of these into a novel." And Eric wasn't interested in doing that. I'd always wanted to write a novel, but I was like, "Yeah, sure, fine." But I said, well, "Let me let me look into it." So I actually found the name of the editor at Pocket Books who was in charge of the Star Trek line at the time, a man named John Ordover. And I contacted John and I asked him. How how would he like, my my pitch to him was, how'd you like a Star Trek novel with the name of an actor, a Star Trek actor on the cover? And he said, that's great, but you guys will have to go through the same process as anybody else. Which meant, as he explained it, Arm and I would have have to put together an outline, a narrative outline, 10, 12, 15 pages, that... Gave the broad strokes, the beginning, and middle, and end of the of the novel, along with all of the major character arcs. So, trying to come up with a story for a forty-two minute television episode is a lot different than trying to come up with what turned out to be a minimum of seventy thousand words for a novel. We ended up writing one hundred thirty-five thousand words, but um, it's it's just a there's much more involved. There's, it's just a you have to expand the story. And so Armin and I got together. Over the course of about three or four weeks, and just beat out this story um, and 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 put it together and wrote it up. and And then we sent it to John over. and at the time, he, John said after we did that, we were going to have to write maybe two or three chapters, fifty pages of the first fifty pages of the novel to demonstrate to him that we could actually write. And so we handed it we handed in the outline to see if he would buy it. But, you know, that was the first stage, if it was okay, then for us to write the first few chapters. But John actually called me 15 minutes after he read the outline and said, yeah, we'll buy it. I'm like, well, what about the 50 pages? He said, You know what? You guys can write just from having read the outline, which was nice to hear. So that's that's how Orman and I first started with the 34th rule. Which initially was called when it was an episode title. When we were pitching it to the show, our working title was "War is Good for Business," which, of course, is the thirty-fourth rule of acquisition.
2: Well, it's easy to get that one confused, of course, with "Peace is Good for Business" as uh,
1: the thirty-fifth rule of acquisition. Exactly. Course.
2: <laughs> well, I I love it as a title of this novel, and and we'll get into like the story shortly here, and into what ultimately happens, and we'll get into spoilers, of course, later in the episode as well, but. The title itself is kind of a nice uh almost foreshadowing for what happens in this story um it's it's a deeper title than i first than I thought at first blush
1: oh good, I'm glad to hear that i it was war is good for business is a little too on the nose um but that's sort of one of the themes of the novel, and at some point we just hit upon well the thirty fourth and that just makes sense as a title and it's I don't know. I like it as a title as well, and it serves the book well.
0: Yeah, I was thinking of looking up what the 34th rule was before I started reading the book, and I thought, no, I'm sure it's going to be addressed. I'd rather it be revealed when it needs to be revealed, and it really wasn't until towards the end of the book where that came up. And, of course, when I read that, I was like, of course, that makes sense. War is good for business because that's kind of the theme of what we see in this book. So I liked that it was called the 34th rule, and not war is good for business.
1: Yeah, it's one thing to foreshadow. It's another thing to hit your reader over the head with it.
0: Yeah, because that can hurt. <laughs>
1: yeah, can <laughs> hurt both of us.
0: <laughs> one thing I loved about this book, there, there's a few things I love, but one thing I love is there's this uh, relationship between uh quark and the rest of the crew and when quark is talking to kira something interesting comes up so when this book uh starts off we find out that the grand nagus zach has come into possession of the ninth orb of the prophets it's the orb of wisdom and he got it from a contact from cardassia and so that actually
1: happened on the show right that that was an episode of deep space nine where he came into possession of that orb
0: right so this would be a follow-up to that so, Zach
1: Well, certainly, certainly subsequent to that, yeah.
0: Okay. So, then Zek is taking bids for this orb. And of course, Bejor, the planet Bejor, wants this orb. And so they put in a bid. But then Zek says, nah, not interested in their bids, not enough, and turns them away. And he's going to look at the top bidders. And Bejor, he's not even going to consider any rebid or anything. He just pushes them off to the side. Well, Kira goes to Quark and she's real angry and she's like, Quark, you need to help us out. You need to go and talk to the Grand Nagus. And Quark's like, Look, there's nothing I can do. I mean, I can't change the Grand Nagus' decisions. But what's interesting is that Quark starts to point out to Kira that, you know, she's disregarding his religious beliefs. And she's like, What are you talking about? You, I'm not, you know, doing anything against your religious beliefs. And Quark is like, You know, the acquisition of profit is as meaningful to us as the spiritual life is to the Bajoran. And I don't think here still really got that or accepted it, but it's true. I mean, the, you know, they seem to always poo-poo on what he does and how his society works around business, but it, it really is a religion. And Dan, what what did you think about that part of the book?
2: Well, it's, it's very true. And, you know, something that comes up a lot in this book, of course, is the... Almost like you were saying at the beginning, Bruce, like when you look at this book, you think, oh, it's just a silly Ferengi book. I don't know if I really want to get into that. And same with the Ferengi episodes that come up on Deep Space Nine. It's like, oh, okay, it's a Ferengi episode. I don't know. And to take that into the universe, a lot of what we see on Star Trek is people disregarding the Ferengi and, and looking down on them. And this is definitely personified through Kira In this episode. And specifically, like you said, you know, Ferengi's beliefs and his goal of acquiring profit is as important to him as, you know, a, a devout Bajoran spirituality or something like that. And I think the tendency is because you don't understand something, it's it's easy to dismiss, or because somebody's values might not might equate to something that you think of as a lesser value. It's hard to see things from their perspective, and I think we really see that in this book, especially through Kira.
1: I think there are a few reasons for that. Um, that that on the series, a lot of the Ferengi episodes tended toward the comedic, um, and, and even sometimes bordered on the farcical. And and um, actually, when Armin and I sat down, even just to pitch to the show, when we were dealing with the Ferengi. Armin was very interested, and I was too very interested in trying to present uh, a different take on them not not something that didn't track with what we knew about them, but that was more serious in nature, and that they weren't always just the comedic foils um, they were just they weren't just a um comic relief and uh, but the thing is the Frankie race. I I think my perception has always been that the very reason it was created for Star Trek was to shine a light on some of the negative qualities of humanity today. And so I think one of the reasons the characters on Star Trek, on Deep Space Nine were written to look down on, on Quark is because we're supposed to, I mean, that, that's, that's why the Ferengi were created. So that, that, makes it may perhaps not as simple to, to call a a serious message out of dealing with the Ferengi if, you know, that that's their, their raison d'etre to begin with, you know? So, um, but Armin and I were definitely interested in doing that. And um, I I think also because the Ferengi are, because they're smaller in stature, because they've got the the large ears. I mean, it's, it's, it seemed like on the show they were always easy to, dismiss.
2: And I find it really interesting in reading this book too. I think I was expecting some of the comedic elements with the Ferengi to play a part. And it was really interesting to me by the time I get to the end of this book. There's really none of that in here. It's a it's a serious story and a very well told story from beginning to end. And there's no there there really isn't any of those comedic aspects, which I think was a really interesting and a really good choice because the story is serious and it really does come across in a way that had me by the end of the book going, huh, you know, I didn't I didn't think that kind of story could be told with Quark and Rom and, and Zek, but it really does work.
1: My feeling about Quark has always been, as a writer, I've always wanted to write Quark as I moved forward in time with him. I always wanted to make him a more mature Ferengi. I wanted him to mature as he, as he lived his life. I didn't want him to become more human, but I wanted him to become a more mature Ferengi. Um, And, um, you know, the part of that is, you know, dealing with him in a serious fashion. And one of the things that was difficult about this novel is that it takes place during the show. So, we had to find a place to put it. It had to be after the episode where Zek got the ore, but it had to be before certain other things happened in the show. Like, um, I mean, Odo Odo had to be a shapeshifter, so it couldn't. It, it, the book couldn't happen after he had been his shapeshifting powers had been taken away from him mm-hmm. by the Dominion. So, I mean, there, there, there were there was uh, there was a strict timeline that we had to fit into. But on top of that you talk about Kira never quite getting the fact that Quark makes the point that my, my beliefs are as important to me as yours are to you. That's because we couldn't change Kira from how she was going to be depicted the following week. Today I can change Kira because we're in 2386, but I can't, I couldn't change Kira during the fourth season of the show. So, um, you know, we, we had those, strictures in place and that that made it a little tougher too um, because you do want people to, to grow and, and see things and you know just there you want are there to be arcs for characters you want them don't want them to stay in place but you know we it, it was tough because of that
0: sometimes i won't read the blurb of a novel because i just kind of want to go in not expecting anything have no expectations of what's going to happen and this was one of them because as dan said you know I, this has been recommended and you know I've heard good things about it and so I wanted to read it but I really didn't know what it was going to be about but it really felt to me like it was a lost episode of DS, DS9 like me like maybe like a two-parter that should have been like you know put into whatever the what is it maybe the third season fourth season something like that
1: what It'd be the end of the end of the fourth season.
0: End of the fourth like season. Like
1: the last last four, five, six hours, something like yeah. that. Yeah, somewhere in there.
0: But yeah, I think, it, so. I think so. Yeah, it felt that way. It you know it felt to me like a lost episode of DS9 because it. I'm going to this novel thinking, oh, okay, this is a book about the Ferengi and about Quark, and it really is a Deep Space Nine novel. It's not just about Ferengi. It's about Bajor. It's about the Federation and. And how all these are intermingled and work with each other, and how they can influence one on the other—that has disastrous results. And should they should one step in, should one step away? So I really liked how that was playing. And and one question I have for you, David: um, I don't know if you know if if Armin, when he approached the character of Quark, was he th- thinking? Of businesses, a religion to Quark when he would per- portray that character. Do you know that?
1: Um, I, I can't. I, I would have to say yes. I don't know if Armin ever said that to me exactly in those words, but um Armin and I talked a lot. I mean, Armin and I became friends, and so you know, we we talk about stuff out, out, apart from the book. Um, and then in fact, there was a there was a, a, a cure episode we were trying to 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 break and then pitch um that had to do with her religion and her we it actually had to do with her having uh, a loss of faith which we thought would be interesting and um but it actually fell by the wayside because at some point Kira what was the episode um the reckoning where Kira was actually her body was inhabited by a prophet kind of hard to have a uh, loss of faith in somebody who's inhabited your body um, so <laughs> Uh, we, we lost that, but we, in talking about this kind of thing, uh, like I said, we went into it, and, and Armin was very firm about this, wanting to regard the Ferengi in a more serious vein, and one of the greatest things is after the book was done, Armin said that he felt that he could take, take what was written in the book and apply it, sort of his backstory, to Quark. And and he felt that it informed his performance from Quark from then on. I know that he did tell me that. So um, I, I imagine that um, he really does. I don't know if he looks, if he, if he, like I, said, I didn't say specifically that it, business is his religion, but I know that that sort of sentiment is what he felt. I mean, obviously that's at the core of Ferengi life.
0: Well, then later in the book, uh, since, Bajor's out of the bidding process, then Shikar evicts all the Frankie from Bajoran space. And then this leads to the Ferengi setting up a blockade, preventing goods and services being exported, imported from to and from Bajor. And of course, Bajor is not in a good place right now after the Cardassian occupation. And they need some food and supplies and such to, to keep going on. But then Bajor, I'm not going to get all the specifics of it, but and starting to get into sp- more spoiler territory here, but Bajor then purchases some ships and they prepare for war with the Ferengi. And I thought it was very interesting because you would think at this point the Bajorans would be of a peaceful society, which at this point I think they were, but then they are at a place now that they don't want to repeat the history they had of enslavement and what happened with the Cardassians. They felt like maybe they were too passive when Cardassia came before, and they didn't want to repeat that again. So they want to be more aggressive and and come up, you know, up front first instead of sitting back and letting things happen. And, of course, at the same time, so they're blocking the Ferengi from coming and using the wormhole. And to the Ferengi, this is all business, but it eventually leads to war. And what's interesting to me, at least through this part of the book, is that the Federation doesn't get involved initially. So I don't know if that was the Federation or as much Cisco just kind of allowing those things to happen for a while and not pushing the Federation to get involved. I just kept wondering as I was reading it, why isn't the Federation doing anything? Why aren't they helping out?
1: Well, Bajor is not part of the Federation, right? So Bajor actually, you know, Deep Space Nine, Bajor is sovereign soil. I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. The Federation occupies Deep Space Nine at the Bajurans' invitation, but the, the Federation still doesn't have jurisdiction. And, and the Bajorans, I mean, the, I, I think, or if I recall correctly in the novel, there's debate among the Bajorans about how they should react to, I mean, they react, as you said, to Zex ousting them from the bidding for the orb, meaning that they can't acquire this orb of the prophets. Which is sacred to them, um, they respond by ejecting all Ferengi, closing and closing the Majoran system, which means access to the wormhole to all Ferengi, and that means Quark and Rom and everybody else, all the other Ferengi on Deep Space Nine have to leave. And um, but when when they expel all the Ferengi, and especially when they cut off the wormhole, which is as you say, business, big business for for the uh, Ferengi Alliance. Um, and the Feder Bajor- and the, Fedor- the, the Ferengi decide. Well, fine then. We're going to blockade. And as it's as it's clear in the I mean, we, we I think maybe we tend to get away from this, but it's clear in the first few seasons of Deep Space Nine that Bajor is still recovering from the occupation. There were. You know, for a long time, they they called their government their provisional government because they were still trying to get elections going and trying to get everything squared away for the people. And they were still getting a lot of aid from the Federation and other places. And now the Ferengi were going to stop that. So, what's the Federation's choice here? They're going to run a blockade with that the Ferengi have put around Bajor? Okay, so now the Federation they're going to risk war with the Ferengi because if they start firing on Ferengi ships, that's an act of war, right? But Ferengi, Ferengen are blockading Bajor. That's not an act of war against the Federation. Bejor doesn't belong to the Federation. It's all very political and, and I believe the Bajorans, different Bajorans had different feelings about how they should respond to the blockade. But some of them obviously won out to say, hey, you know, if we need to fight we need to fight we're not I and mean, because they st- they still needed food and 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 medical supplies and things like that still recovering from the occupation even though that had been ended a few years earlier they still were in, in in trouble so the but the federation couldn't get involved not without without risking war themselves
2: when things like this come up in the book i i tend to try and think of like the average federation citizen and like you say, Bajor isn't part of the Federation. So, you know, we have Captain Sisko, of course, and his crew who are in the middle of everything, and it's a very personal thing for them. They uh they've lived with the Bajorans, they 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 have a very personal connection there. But to the average Federation citizen, I, I don't think like the Federation could, like you say, just start running a blockade and firing on Frangi ships to get stuff through because like you say, Bejor is not part of the federation. And I think people would really question like, what's, what are you doing? Like, why is the federation getting involved in this? And,
1: uh, it's not an exact analogy, but I mean, you think about NATO, I mean, Hitler invaded Poland in 1939 and the United States did not get involved. Mm. Right. It's not exactly the same. analogy. we don't have a, we, we didn't have a, a, a space station in Poland, but, um, <laughs> Still, I mean, yeah, it's 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 when we're talking about war, it's a difficult calculation to make. I mean, maybe the Federation could have thought, hey, the you are bluffing. Maybe there are other things they could have done. But I mean, it's a it's it's a situation fraught with peril.
2: Yeah, and I think I feel like the book does a really good job of getting that across, and especially the frustration that Cisco feels not being able to do anything. And I mean, he skirts the resolution a few times and, and gets involved a little bit, but at the same time, he's not, it's not like he's cursing the Federation for their inaction. You know, it's understandable. Like it doesn't, he, he's not saying, Oh, those idiots back home, they don't know what they're doing. It's kind of more like, yeah, I mean, we can't get involved, but I'm going to see what I can do kind of thing. Man of action. That, that's Cisco. Mm.
0: I guess the way I look at it, and I, I totally understand what is being said here, but if the Cardassians were to come to Bajor and Cisco, as a representative of the Federation, knows that another war or a war is about to start, I feel like he and the Federation would try to do something to prevent that. And here we got a situation where Cisco knows that if a war starts... Bajor is going to lose. The Ferengi have more power, and I felt that it wasn't until the end of the book that he got involved. But they were just kind of sitting back and just allowing it to happen with concern. But I just thought they treated the Ferengi situation differently than they would have if it was the Cardassians.
1: I don't know if that's. I understand what you're saying, and I don't know if that's true. Even though we didn't know it at the time, if you look forward in Deep Space Nine. In the television series, the Dominion took over Bajor <laughs> and expelled the Federation, and the Federation, right then and there, didn't do anything. Right? It was still, it was still before they, the, you know, the war, and they, it was, you know, they're still trying to avoid war. So this actually, in a way, I mean, it's different circumstances, but in a way, it sort of happened later, where the Dominion took over Bejor. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing Cisco could do about it. And the Federation, at least at first, did not go to war over it.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I also think of, and I mean, you know, this is different because it's an outside force invading. But I also think of when the Circle coup happened in season two, and Starfleet said to Cisco, "Pack up your stuff and get out of there." Like it's not, you know, we can't get involved mm-hmm. here.
1: Well, you think about it too. Also, the if, you know the Frangi blockaded Bajor so they were not getting medical supplies or not getting the foodstuffs that they needed. But it, Cisco did take some action. It's not like that lasted six months or a year, right? I mean, maybe, maybe a few months and Bajoran children are starting to die because they don't have enough food or they don't have the right medicine. And maybe that makes Cisco takes some action. Maybe that, Maybe Cisco then starts haranguing the Federation trying to get them to take action. Maybe the Federation doesn't need to be harangued. Maybe they do take action if things like that starting to happen. But this is sort of a developing situation where it just, you know, we're at the very nascent stages of, it's not even a war yet. And actually the Ferengi blockade is a arguably legitimate political response to all of their citizens being kicked out of Bajoran space, and the wormhole closed. So you're impacting Th- Ferengi life. For, you know They can't do the business they wanna do with the Gamma Quadrant because they can't get to the wormhole now. So this is a legitimate political reaction. Now you could argue too that, that Bajor Be- expelling people is a legitimate political action uh, reaction to Zek not, not letting them have the orb. Not even letting them buy the orb, not even letting them bid for it after that first round of bidding, so yeah, it's complicated,
0: I think one reason i'm I'm feeling the way I do about that situation is the conversation that Quirk and Cisco have earlier in the book, and it touches on racism and it's something that is pretty prominent uh, in the book uh, in the way the Frankie are treated and in the conversation uh Quirk and Cisco mentioned that they're not friends. And then Cork mentions, well, they you know, they could be friends if Sisko just applied his vaulted federated, Federation morality to the Ferengi. And then he says, if it was somebody else who had the Bajoran's orb, Starfleet would be offering to negotiate between the two governments. You would be offering. But in this case, you're happy no matter the outcome. Either the Bajorans get the damn orb... Or you don't have to put up with the Ferengi and the Bajoran system in the g- Gamma Quadrant. But now it's interesting because then Cisco, in a conversation with Jake, says one of the things that court claimed was that human gen- that humans generally disregard out of hand anything any Ferengi has to say because of the nature of the alliance's capitalist s- culture. He specifically said that this was true of me. And that I never paid any attention to him or took him seriously strictly because he was a Ferengi. And that was something I never really thought much about watching the show, but there is a disregard for the Ferengi. And I I've noticed that, but it, it kind of does tread on racism. It's treating the species as if like, you know, the way you do things we disagree with. So you don't count.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, do you hit, to me, what is the the real heart of the book? I mean,
0: it's real, really
1: the heart of Star Trek, talking about inclusion and, and accepting people and, and trying to bring everybody to the table. Um, you know, we saw hints of this in the show. Um, the first appearance of the Jem'Hadar, in fact, I think the episode was called The Jem'Hadar, mm-hmm. maybe. I don't know. Uh, uh, where where uh, Quark and Cisco are with with uh nog and jake pat on some plan and then the Dar show up um and they and cisco and quark have a little back and forth sort of presaging this conversation that they have in the 34th rule and he, the thing of it is that's really difficult star trek's really it's i love star trek because of its message of inclusiveness and and, and a positive future that's what i just find really attractive about the about the show and the books and all of that, but it also has a built-in difficulty. Uh, almost, it's almost paradoxical because, for example, we cre- they, they, you know they created the Klingons and the Romulans as continuing adversaries back in the original series, and you know the Romulans were the Chinese and the Klingons were the Russians, right? But in order to, we, don't, we didn't see a whole lot of Klingons, and you know, uh, at first, I mean, there were a few here and there in the original series, and even fewer Romulans. But we treat the Klingons and the Romulans as monolithic. Every individual who is a Klingon is a warrior, is uh, is is bellicose. Uh, is, you know, thinks that there's, there's honor and fighting to the death and all of that. And all, and the Romulans have all of their characteristics. And really, it's true, the Jemhadar are this, and actually the Jemhadar are because they're manufactured beings. But the, my point is that they, again and again in Star Trek, we treat individual species, we treat uh, its overall species as though every single individual has the characteristics of that species. So all Ferengi, without exception, are greedy. They're capitalistic and they're greedy and you know all of those things and that's that's sort of you have to do that from a production standpoint. One of the one of the the old saws on Star Trek in trying to create a story, if you had involved an in alien culture, the rule of thumb was, in when you're trying to put together a script, two rooms, four guys, right? You can cr- you can create a new species, but you have to be able to uh, to show them with no more than 2 sets and no more than 4 individuals. That's just a rule of thumb because you have to pay to build sets. You have to pay actors to play characters. So, you know, shows have budgets. So, you had to so there's a practical element to i saying that this this person is emblematic of every other person in this particular alien species. And that's antithetical to what Star Trek stands for, which is that you treat individuals as individuals and everybody deserves a seat at the table. But it makes this pro, th- this issue kind of interesting with Quark, because, especially because Quark is a main character on the show. Mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting that he's not entirely adversarial. But like I said, most times he's comic relief. And I don't know, Ar- Armin and I just wanted to do, you know, we wanted to to, to talk about what, what some of the things that were most important to us and are really at the core of Star Trek. And racist, I love that scene with, with uh, Quark and Cisco, And I love that scene with Cisco and Jake when Cisco starts questioning himself, thinking, geez, am I being racist? I love that. Mm-hmm. I really love that.
2: Yeah, it's a really meaningful moment for both the character of Quark and Cisco, I think, and especially like you say, with that following on that he's really taken some of this to heart and really internalized some of Quark's arguments and and is trying to see if they do reflect how he thinks. I, I keep thinking back. There's there's an episode of the Next Generation, and I forget how old I was when I it was probably on a rewatch at some point that it just occurred to me how racist or, or, or how something this line was that it was the episode, the perfect mate and the enterprise rescues two Ferengi and they beam them aboard from this shuttle. And Riker turns to Worf and says, Mr. Worf set them up with quarters, not too close to mine. And I was just like, wow. (laughs) And it was was just so casually tossed off. And I think it was in deep space nine, you know, something like that with Quark and the Ferengi, it would almost be done to to draw notice to the fact that that was said, and then the episode would say something about it. But in this particular Next mm-hmm. Generation episode, the the script itself was unaware of how horrible that line was.
1: Yeah, it was played for comedy, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, yeah, that's not so funny. <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting to hear, like in a, in a Next Generation episode, to hear O'Brien call the Cardassians Cardies or Spoonheads or whatever. And it's like, wow. I mean, that's just, that's just it just it hits the ear wrong. It's like, that's, that is racist. Mm. And that's why it's good to show individuals of the different species differing from other individuals of the, that species. And in fact, Quark, Mr. Quark, Mr. Quark, Mr. Businessman, what I, what I, the way I always saw Quark maybe not always, but as, as he's evolved, I, I've seen Quark as somebody who's trying to live up to an ideal he has in his head. And the ideal he has in his head is that quintessential Ferengi businessman, the, the, the ideal that he was raised with, that he was taught as a young boy and that he has lived with his entire life. And yet, Quark, even though he wants to live up to that ideal, he actually many times in the show, and certainly t- there are times in the books, where he um, he does something in contravention of that ideal. And like for example, in the show, it turns out that he gave a lot of money to to, to a lot of Latinum, to take care of Bejoran orphans, Bejoran ch- children who were orphaned by the occupation. Mm-hmm. And I forget what episode that that came to light in, but that's not something that a completely avaricious businessman would do, right? You have to have a heart for that. You have to have some feeling for, for other beings to do that. And, and, but Quark doesn't want people to know that. He tries to hide that. And so even though he's not living up to his ideal, he still wants to give the impression that he's living up to that ideal. So I don't know. I look at Quark as a a more complicated character than sometimes he was portrayed by the scripts on the show, Mm -hmm. Um, especially those where he was just comic relief.
0: Well, I think there was a lot of great moments throughout the, the book. Uh, between different characters the chemistry and the and the dialogue between characters and there were times I laughed out loud I think I think the voices of the characters and the way the actors portrayed them really came across really well throughout and I was going to pull out some examples and I forgot to do that but there there was a few in there I highlighted that that uh, and not just with Quark but even with some of the other characters you know with Odo and and even just, you know, Bashir's interaction with Wynn and Shakar and that sort of thing, there was just a lot of good chemistry in there.
1: Mm-hmm. Glad to hear that. I, I I It's been a long time since I've read the 34th Rule, but I uh, one of the lines that I do remember is, saying, is somebody saying, oh, so that's the Ferengi's customer service department, yeah. and Cork saying, what's well, a customer service department?
2: I actually <laughs> highlighted that in my book, too. That was a great line. <laughs> <laughs>
1: There is one little bit of comedy that might, especially this far removed from watching the show, might have escaped you guys. Maybe, maybe not. Um, But Armin, as you may know, played several characters on Star Trek in the Next Generation, um, starting in the Next Generation, several different characters, mostly Ferengi. But every character Armin had played up to the point where we were writing this book is in the in the Thirty Fourth Rule, and that includes the Bajoran gift box from (laughs) Haven.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, I did catch that. And I actually, it's fairly late in the novel where the, the first Ferengi he played shows up. And I was up to that point, like, so when's this guy going to show up? When's, when's that late Leitech guy going to show up? And then, uh, when, you know they they hail uh, the ship in orbit of Ferenginar, and it's it's that guy. He's a daemon now, and he's. And I was trying yeah. to picture this while I was reading it. He's kind of moving about and jumping around like the character did I on did the planet in that episode. And yeah. I was like, oh, that's that's great. <laughs> doesn't doesn't didn't, doesn't one of the
1: characters maybe Cisco? Doesn't somebody say, does he look familiar?
2: Yeah, yes. I think
1: somebody somebody says that. I think now that I recall. Yes, yeah, and we didn't did. we didn't hit too we didn't try, I try not to hit too much on that. You know, it was a, kind of an inside joke, and people got it, great. But we didn't want to hit it people over the head with it either.
2: Yeah, there's kind of a minor moment for all three of them. Uh, when yeah. he's in the Damon Bracter is in the in the transporter room, and Cisco's like, oh, he kind of I don't know, he seems familiar somehow. And then the gift oh, there, box yeah, right okay. at the very end. He says, "Hey, it has your right. face." And he's like, "What are you talking about? Doesn't even yeah. have ears." Oh, yeah. No, okay, never mind.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't there something about recognizing the teeth on on the frang- on one of the Frankies too or something? Like there's something about the teeth.
2: Yeah, that was LeTech. They, they said something about him having really ugly bottom teeth, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, I Uh, I'm afraid I don't remember that, but I believe you.
2: (laughs) Well, I think uh, it's probably time to get into some more spoilery parts of the book. So uh, if you haven't read The 34th Rule, I guess, and and don't want to be spoiled, this would probably be a good time. Pause the podcast, buy it. It's available as an ebook. Read it quickly (laughs) and come back to us because we're going to be talking a little bit more about how, you know, the plot kind of – Resolves and what happens in the last half of this book here. So we've got, like we've mentioned, this blockades going on and things are kind of escalating. And Quark and Rom decide to kind of go against the edict that they have to leave Bajoran space. And this is kind of uh, Dax kind of put pushes Quark in this direction, saying like, you know, what are they going to do? You know, we're not going to arrest you, Odo has no reason to arrest, arrest you, he believes in justice, not the strict rule of laws that are unjust. So they decide to stick around on the station. And unfortunately, they do get arrested by Bajoran authorities and get put into a camp on Bajor. And of course, it's the infamous Galatep, which is, it was run by the Cardassians when they occupied Bajor and their horrible atrocities committed there. And Kira was part of the the resistance group that liberated it, but it's been converted apparently to house the Ferengi. Who eventually there's Quark and Rom are there along with I think eight other Ferengi prisoners, who are you know awaiting trial. But eventually it turns into a political prison because they're no longer awaiting trial. They are now being held as political prisoners. And this is the this is a point in the story that it takes a, a significant turn because what happens at Galatep is really hard to fathom happening on Bejor, but it's all because of this one man, this Colonel Mitra, who is running the camp and commits, you know, horrible, unspeakable crimes against the Frangi They're torturing them and and making their lives miserable. And it was at this point that you know, I really started to notice this theme coming through in this book about the cycle of violence, at least as it seemed to me with this Colonel Mitra. You know, he was someone who we find out eventually was a prisoner at Galatep and had very likely been abused there and had a horrible existence there as well. And now he's visiting those same crimes on other people. And it really spoke to me about how these things can leave such deep scars in a society and in individuals when horrible crimes have been perpetrated on them that are then again revisited on another people, whether it's, you know, in the case of a society doing that, or even just an individual, like in this case.
1: Well, that's great that all of that came through, because that's, Exactly what we were going for, and as you say, the cycle of violence. You have a father who beats his son. Does the son grow up to also beat his son, or does he go in the opposite direction and say, you know, that that that's I'm not I'm going to be completely opposite of that. What this terrible how this t- raise my son differently than this terrible man raised me, mm-hmm. and it can go either way. And you you know, and it, and the same is true of society. You're exactly right. And so my my feeling about Mitra. Who was really really that was a tough character to write um my feeling about it is his internment at galatep and and all of the indignities and worse that he suffered at the hands of the Cardassians um drove him mad that that that's kind of how i i I felt about the character that it was just too much for him to bear, and so placed in this situation where he was overseeing. The same camp, uh, albeit for just a small number of people, he just he just snapped and he 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 took on the role of you know the of the master of the aggressor and uh, yeah those I actually the first draft that I turned in of the thirty fourth rule I got notes from my editor and he said uh, one of the notes was there's no place in Star Trek for graphic violence. Mm-hmm. And I I called John and I said, hey, you're absolutely right. There's definitely no place for graphic violence in Star Trek. And I'm such a good writer. I made you think there was graphic violence in my novel, but there isn't. Read it again. And he did. And he says, oh, yeah, you're right. So, um, but I think the feeling of all of that is something I tried to to get through. You know, you, I wanted to make the reader feel like this was really going on without going into the details of what was
0: happening. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I, when I got to this part, I wasn't even sure what I was reading at first. I thought, Whoa, what, what is happening here? You know, I did, was not expecting this. I thought, Oh, it's, you know, Quark and Rom are going to be in some jail prison or something like that. And they're going to try to find a way to escape. And then you start to find all these brutal acts are taking place. And, and this Mitra is like totally insane. He starts calling himself a Gall, And I started thinking, well, wait, is this, is this a Bajoran that's been surgically altered or, or a Cardassian surgically altered to look Bajoran? Like there was just, and it was so intense And I thought, you know, you were saying earlier, David, about, you know, we couldn't change the character of Kira, but the situation that Quark and Rahman were in this situation really, in a way, changes them as characters. Because, I mean, they're scarred for life from what they experienced there. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I feel that way. And Armin felt that way, too. Like I said, he thought that he, he carried this with him as when he portrayed Quark, you know, in seasons five, six and seven. So... I mean, he, he definitely felt that way too. It, it was that was, all that stuff was very difficult to write, but I, it, it's um, I don't know. It's something you wanted to talk about. You want you want to talk about the cycle of violence. You want to talk about. I, I mean, to me that I I love when Star Trek tackles tough subjects. Mm-hmm. So and in, you know what you would I would consider important subjects, and so I I love to get in there and do that. And um, yeah, I mean that's uh, it was that was you know the the first cover we were given for the thirty fourth rule was and I love the cover of the thirty fourth rule but the first cover first version we were given same Harkin Rom at galatep, but it had barbed wire uh it had a physical barrier as opposed to like um i mean a a, a solid barrier as opposed to force beam, force field beams or whatever um it had which is how I described Galatep as, as a very low tech encampment where you know, it had the, the I wanted it to feel like a Nazi prison camp. Mm-hmm. Um but it also on the cover so it had that and it had the word it had a sign that said Galatep. I'm like, you know what? I want that to be kind of a surprise.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, want, I want that to be, you know, somebody turns the page I mean that that's how I end a chapter. Um and maybe even a section, is with them, the realization that they're in Galatep, and I, I, I didn't want that on the cover. So I tried to fight for that, but I, what, what ended up happening was they took Galatep off the cover, which was great, but they wanted, forced, They wanted you know, uh, 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 24th century beams protecting the camp instead of, you know, barbed wire. So I, they changed that, <laughs> even though that's not what it is in the book. <laughs>
2: I feel like I saw that cover at some point online or, or yeah, something. Yeah, I think
1: it's probably, I think it was out somewhere. I think maybe in one of the catalogs, you know, you know, I probably got the cover late in the game and they'd already sent it out to catalogs. Mm-hmm. And so they changed the cover, but that cover probably still exists somewhere online.
2: Yeah. Um, one One other thing about that whole section you were mentioning, it was very difficult to write. It was... I have to say very difficult to read as well. And to me, when you first kind of realize how horrible things are, it's from Rom's perspective, which I felt was a really interesting choice and was so impactful to me as a reader, because, you know, you love Rom. Rom is such an innocent or, or he seems that way most of the time. And he's, um, you don't want to say he's simple because you learn that he has depths that you don't know later, but you know, he's such, he's such a, a, a cherubic, almost innocent character that it's so, Oh, it's so hard to read what he's going through being marched nearly to death. And it's, it's mm-hmm. so heartbreaking.
1: Yeah. I, Ibram is, yeah, you're right. You don't want to call him simple, but he's simple in terms of the way he treats people. Mm-hmm. Right. He doesn't. He 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 doesn't have any artifice about him when he's dealing with other other people, no matter whether they're Ferengi or humans or Bajorans or anybody else. So he's simple in the way he deals with people. He's just a nice person. And so, yeah, it became more dramatic to deal with the revelation of what was going on at Galatep through his eyes.
2: Well, another thing, kind of with regards to this part of the story, is. Uh, Cisco when he kind of realizes what's happened and finds out that they've gone through this thing. And he kind of has this bit of self-reflection and a bit of guilt for not checking up on Quark and Rom or thinking much of them while they've been incarcerated. And he, you know, maybe if he'd been more proactive, it's possible that the abuses that are visited upon them and the other prisoners might've been avoided. And, you know, of course, what's echoing through my head is that famous saying all that's needed for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And I I uh-huh. really like in the, in that, in that section of the book, I really found myself putting myself in Cisco's shoes and how I would feel, you know, not, not having done something or not having even been aware of something that was happening, you know, pretty much right under my nose to people that maybe if I don't consider them friends, I at least, you know, know them and, and can empathize with them.
1: It's really easy, maybe not easy, but it's, it's, it, you can readily defend and protect people who are your family and who are your friends. What's important is to defect, to protect and defend people who are not right. I mean, the, the, the first amendment um, analogy would be, you know, it's really easy to defend the free speech rights of people with whom you agree. That's unimportant. What's important is defend the free speech rights of people with whom you disagree. And uh, and yeah, I mean, I think I think that um, I think Cisco's self-reflection at the end of the book is very important. It's very important for the character, but it's very important also for Star Trek and for the points that we were trying to get across.
0: Well, I mean, I think that's we've covered just about everything we can cover unless dan there's something else you want to say but you know typically when we review the older books we give our ratings of it so david you get to enjoy the fact that we're going to rate your book right here on the show okay should i hang up now no uh, no you want to hear this
1: (laughs) okay so now people are going to think you give it if you give it a high rating then people are going to think you gave it a high rating because i was on on the show with you.
0: Now, listen, every time I give a rating, I figure, well, the author could end up listening to this anyway. So they're just going to hear what I'm going to say regardless.
1: (laughs) I don't take it personally.
0: Okay. Well, that's good. Um, (laughs) No, I really like Uh the book. I'll just say, and we have fun with the ratings too. So I would just say that again, it, the book wasn't what I was expecting. It was more than I expected. It felt more like a deep space nine, story not just a quark story so it was definitely it had all the characters in there it again it felt like it should have just been an episode or two-part episode of deep space nine and i think we were talking about you know the the arrest of quark and rom and, and what they went through at the camp and being prisoners and i mean that just there was just parts in there that like I was starting to get scared when there was a knife and cork's ears starting to bleed. And I was like, Oh my gosh. And at one point I did think <laughs> cork was dead. You know, I was like, what's going on. But, uh, and, and the theme of racism, it just, it put a lot of things in perspective that I haven't really thought or has been pointed out in star Trek, maybe to this degree about the Federation. But anyway, I would say that cork has pulled me a pretty full glass of tequila on this one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'll, I'll take that.
2: That's great. I love that.
1: Yeah, I just, as long as, just as long as the worm in the bottom is, 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 is not a da- not a, uh, a, um, a, a symbiont. A trill. Yeah. True. Trill. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> trill symbiont. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I have to agree with everything you've said there, Bruce. This was, this is a book that really, even though I'd heard really good things about it, it just, it still surprised me. You know, reading this book, it went to places that I was not expecting it to go. And like you said, that final, that scene where Quark's in his quarters and Colonel Mitra has snuck in and you find out it's a dream, but it was so visceral and so frightening. Uh, I, I I just read that chapter today. I finished this book today and my heart was pounding and it's just the scars that Quark and Rom got at this place, aren't just physical. There's, you know, there's so much here. And I, I really, you know, especially listening to this conversation, putting myself in Armin Shimmerman's shoes and, you know, how that's informed his character going forward makes a lot of sense because this is a profound book and took me to places that I was not expecting to go. And I would have to absolutely give this one, uh, four out of four roles played by Armin Shimmerman. This was a really, really good <laughs>
1: That's good. I'll take that, too. Always good to have Armin on your side. Always good to have Armin as one of your actors. He can deliver.
0: <laughs> yes, I've I seen
1: I've, seen. I've watched Armin on stage do Shakespeare, and it's just a thing of beauty. It's just he's astonishingly good.
0: Well, one thing I wanted to point out as we were talking, I did look up online and I found the original proposed cover and Mm. anybody who wants to see it can go to memory beta, the Wikipedia for Star Trek books, non-canon stuff or whatever. And if you look up the 34th rule further down in the page, you'll find the alternate cover that has the barbed wire.
1: Excellent. Ah. So. And that stupid Galatep sign.
0: Yes, and that's there too.
1: <laughs> when, I, when, I, when, I, when I saw that, I was like, no! You know, it really, it's like watching a trailer for a movie where they show you the entire movie. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want the trailer for my, for my book. I don't want the cover for my book to show one of the most important moments in the book. <laughs>
2: exactly. What's funny to me is when I first saw that cover, uh, what bothered me was that it was in English. Or in uh, you know uh right right, right. was federation (laughs) standard yeah Yeah. exactly (laughs) right
1: yeah but you know what you're right they could we could have had that sign up there as long as it was in bajoran or cardassian
0: yeah that would have worked perfect
1: (laughs) that would have worked of course there would have been no point to have it then but okay
0: so david where can people find you online or what projects do you have coming up
1: um, at the moment, oh, always the best place to find me is at my website, which is DRGIII. drg, Dave, Dave, David R. a third, but it's drgiiii.com or .net or .org, whatever. I got them all. Um, I'm on there, and I've got, you know, my, you can find my Star Trek books on there and uh, upcoming events. Actually, I'm going to be going back to the um, original series set tour in uh, upstate New York in June with several other Star Trek writers. And these are meticulously recreated sets from the original series that you can walk through and sit on and then push buttons. And it's it's just spectacular. And we're gonna be there uh, uh, sometime in late June. You can find information about that on there. And I also do film reviews and all sorts of other stuff. Um, and uh, at the moment, I'm I'm actually working on a couple of short stories and a, a just a spec novel uh, that's not Star Trek. Um, and I'm not sure what else is in my immediate future, but I will let you know as soon as I know.
0: All right, that sounds good. I'm going to have to try to save up some of my Delta Sky miles to maybe make that trip in June. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's uh, it's really an amazing accomplishment that this this man is, has has uh, done, and uh, these sets are amazing. And you walk through them; it's very surreal. And one thing that's interesting about them is that they don't—he didn't create them as though you were on the Enterprise. He created them as though you were on the sets of Star Trek. Mm. So you know, in this set, there's no fourth wall, and you know, it's it's the way the sets would look. But it it that doesn't it doesn't make it. Less enjoyable. It, it's it just it, it sort of, in a way, adds to the surrealism surrealism of it all. It, it's uh, I don't know. I'm I'm looking forward to going back. It's an amazing place.
2: Well, thank you so much for being on. It was uh, it was a definite pleasure, and especially being able to talk about this your first uh, Star Trek novel too is a lot of fun.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me, and and really genuinely thank you for both of you for reading the book. It's. That's why writers write, so people will read. And uh, it's all these years later, it's delightful to hear that not only did you two read the book for the first time, but you also enjoyed it. So that makes me happy. I love happy readers.
2: You know, it's always a treat to have the authors on. But in this case it was even cooler to have an author on talking about one of the older novels. You know, we always have them on for new releases that have just come out, you know, within the last couple of weeks, but to be able to talk to DRG the third about his first novel and especially one that he wrote, uh, with one of the actors on deep space nine, that was a really cool conversation.
0: Yeah. When I was talking to David prior to this episode about, you know, that we were reviewing this book. And I said, you know, you can come on. He's like, ah, you know, it's, it's been such a long time. Cause you know, it's nearly almost 20 years since he wrote this. He's like, you know, I don't know how much I'll remember, but it was all coming back to him as we're <laughs> talking through it. It was just all coming back. And you know, that's, that's the thing I think about writing a book. You're so invested and, and you live that writing for so long that when you hear people talk about it i'm sure just this flood of memories and what he wrote in there just was coming back so yeah that was a lot of fun and and i was surprised uh how much i enjoyed that book i i really did i'm not i'm not saying that because he was on the episode i seriously really loved that book that that was one of the better ds9 books i've read in a while
2: so now that he's off, now that he's gone, what's your real rating?
0: No, I'm just kidding. Uh, oh, it sucked. <laughs> I hated it. No, I'm just kidding. But no, anybody who hasn't read it, I definitely recommend checking it out. So yeah, I gave it five stars in Goodreads, but, you know, because I can't give it four and a half, but that's more where I was leaning towards. But. Mm-hmm anyway but uh you know that's just the fun about talking about books and past books with the authors but it's not the only thing we've been discussing here on the network so here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on trek fm previously on Trek.fm standard orbit
2: this episode is one of those tropes like why is
0: jack the ripper something that just completely still captivates us in storytelling.
2: It's interesting. People are always obsessed. like You always see some new documentary on the History Channel. Like, we found the new Jack the Ripper. Was Jack the Ripper a woman? Was Jack the Ripper a political figure? Was he a part of the royal family? It's like, do we care at
0: this point? The 602 Club.
2: Yes, I, I, you're you're absolutely right. Um, I love the fact that the theme of, of PTSD carries through. And the very first thing that they do is they throw at you They double-underline, circle, and bold the point that revenge doesn't chase the demons away.
0: Earl Grey.
1: I dragged him over to Seth MacFarlane, who had never met before, and I said, so you're a big Star Trek Next Gen fan? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I'm Lieutenant Commander Shelby. And he looked at me and he went, that means you're Elizabeth Dennehy. I suppose that's why someone like you sits in the shadow of a great man passing off one command after he started saying all of my lines to me. And we started doing
0: all of our scenes and lines. Isn't that hilarious? Warp 5.
2: The Guardians are the Borg.
0: That's it. The Guardians are the Borg.
1: Tune in later on. We might talk about it.
0: <laughs> Let's write that episode together. All right. See, but the thing is that these the these sphere builders, though, like, they... they must think of themselves as the guardians of the galaxy. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond, and you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you are one of those Apple users, be sure to hit the subscribe
2: button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or even the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And, you know, if you have the time, leave us a star rating and written review. We'd love to hear from you. Regardless of what you have to say, if you think we're awesome, give us lots of stars. If you think we need to improve, give us fewer stars. But tell us, you know, how we can improve and make this podcast better. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link there as well.
0: And if you'd like to help us keep the shows coming to you each and every week, you can become a patron on the network that we call Patreon. And that's at patreon.com slash Fm. That's patreo dot com slash trekfm. And there you'll find all the details. And there's all kinds of perks that come with it, like early access to episodes and producer credits and such. And plus uh, we have a website for patrons called Patron Zone. And we also do a patron round table. And we have one this month that I am host of where we discuss the whole first season of Discovery. So that's a whole lot of fun. So, you know, it requires a great deal of money for us to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. So we really appreciate any support you can give us. And again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm.
2: We'd also love to hear your thoughts on today's show and any of the episodes we've done. And there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is on the Babel Conference, that's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks and that'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at Trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek.fm.
0: You probably want to check out goodreads.com. If you haven't, this is a great place where people discuss books that they're reading. And we have a group right there on the website. And so just go to Goodreads and search for literary treks and then click join group. And we'll let you in and you'll see... Uh, the future shows of what we're going to be discussing and the conversations that we're having about the current books and comics. And we've had a lot of people joining just recently. So we've got a lot of new members that have joined and we'd like you to join if you haven't uh, joined in on the fun and the discussions of Star Trek books and comics in Goodreads. And we'd like to thank Norman Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shane Mottella, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM Network and being associate producers for literary treks as well. So, Dan, when you're not on Beijor and trying to get back to Frenganar, where can people find you? Well, you know, you'd think if they don't want me on
2: Frenganar, they'd just send me back there, but they've put me in prison for some reason. That doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. But since I'm cooling my heels here in prison, uh, I don't have a lot of internet access, but when I finally do get some, you can find me on Twitter at K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. that's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. I'm on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions, facebook.com slash Productions, and of course, I'm hanging around in the Babel Conference talking about Star Trek, mostly Discovery right now, but other stuff too. Now, Bruce, when you're not making the deal of the century by selling some starships to Euridians so they can sell it to the Bajorans, so you can get them back from the Bajorans at zero cost and then sell them again, where can we find you?
0: Well, I'll be making a lot of profit and I'm going to buy a moon. I'm really looking forward to retiring on (laughs) a moon. Just like Quark wanted to do. But you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with the underline, then Rex. And uh, you can listen to the episodes that we've recorded called Live from the Edge, which were live shows that we did after each premiere episode of Star Trek Discovery and I do that with Brandy Jacola, and uh, I also do a Star Wars podcast called Star Wars Report at StarWarsReport.com so check that out and uh, of course I'm always in the Babel Conference so thanks everyone for listening and until next time live long and read on.
1: You call that light reading? To each his own number one.